So I bet you know the kilowatt hours that you consume every month, but do you know exactly what's going on in your home? Do you know what's causing those kilowatt hours to rack up or what you can change to reduce those kilowatt hours? Well, with Sense, it's pretty easy to do that. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using so you can save energy and see what's happening all from your smartphone. It's a little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. To find out more, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. This is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome Hey, we're five years old this week. Five years ago, I'm not sure I could have imagined a President Donald Trump shaking hands with North Korea's dictator telling him he had a great personality. But then again, 2013 was the year that Dennis Rodman traveled to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un. So I guess that was our harbinger. In that spirit, later in the show, we're going to pick a single moment from the last five years that caused an unstoppable ripple in the world of energy, the butterfly effect, so to speak. But first, we're talking Tesla, where Musk is laying off 9% of employees in a push toward profitability. We'll look at where the layoffs are hitting and why. We'll also cover the never-ending saga in Washington over saving coal plants. A leaked memo shows the Trump administration is now thinking about invoking national security, a few national security laws, to prop up coal and nuclear plants. And the nation's top energy regulators, well, they're giving it the cold shoulder. Five years on, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, well, they're still here with me. They haven't left me yet. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions, based in Washington, D.C. I'd ask you how you're doing, Catherine, but seeing as how the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup, you could probably have like four broken limbs and a concussion right now and say you're doing wonderfully. Yeah, absolutely. You got that right. It's been... They've never won the cup. So this was a huge, huge deal. And it made everybody in the city happy. And we really needed that. Jigger, did you get as much pleasure out of it? You know, I, I would I'd love to just say that I'm a huge Caps fan, but uh, I'm more of a fair weather Caps fan, but uh, more of a Blackhawks fan. I'm still Chicago all the way. Naturally. So Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital. He's also there in the D.C. area, although... His uh, sports fanaticism still lays lies in the Midwest. I saw that Generate is hiring. Uh, they're not preparing to put out the call and replace you on Twitter, are they, J- Jigger? It could happen. It could happen. So, <laughs> you know, we'll have to watch our, our Twitter feed very carefully. <laughs> well, if you watched Elon Musk's Twitter feed on Monday, he told the world that he's laying off 9% of salaried employees at the company. This is uh, not the first round of sweeping layoffs at Tesla. It's happened a few times. The biggest percentage cut was actually after the 2008 financial crisis during those very dark days for everyone um, and for Tesla when it lost its Series E round. And then uh, most recently, of course, thousands of people were let go after the Solar City acquisition because of redundancies. But this appears to be the biggest in terms of the number of people, about 3,000 people. So the goal is to slash redundancy and push toward profitability. Musk has long scoffed at the idea of profitability at this stage in the game, but he explicitly said in his letter to employees that the firm needs to start turning a profit. Jigger, does Elon have his priorities in the right place? Well, look, I... I think that this uh, announcement really signals a shift for Elon, right? I, I mean, I think, as you said, 
he really never focused on profit. He really thought his products would do all the talking for him. I, I think that he's recognizing now that if he doesn't, uh, you know, make the moves necessary to gain the respect and the, you know, admiration of his bankers, that uh, he will have a hard time raising more money. You have a split in the investment community. You do have uh, a lot of bullish investors who are willing to accept that Tesla's, um, you know, not going to turn a profit for some time. Or I, I should say, they have been willing to accept that. But there are now more investors on uh, earnings calls who are questioning when Tesla is going to, um, you know, get its cash situation corrected. And there are, of course, a lot of bearish investors. So. The pressure certainly has mounted, although I'd say that there are still a lot of uh, investors out there who believe in Musk's vision, regardless of the profitability position. So let's just look at the trajectory of how he's been growing the company. So in the last fall, he had 33,000 employees and cut about 400. The beginning of 2018, he had 37,500 full-time employees. So he he cut a few hundred, but he was still growing. And since then, he's hired 8,000 more people. So laying off 9% is not even scratching the surface of the people that he's hired. So what does this mean really for how he's cutting? Because it doesn't appear that the layoffs have really been you know, on a trajectory that would show his cost declining. There are some analysts who are saying anything counts at this point because uh, Tesla has a lot of debt that's due. Um, they've cumulatively lost oh, about five and a half billion dollars. They're going to lose another billion and a half dollars over the next four quarters. So yeah, it's it's a very small amount with these layoffs, but analysts are saying like any amount counts at this point. Interestingly, you know, they're ditching this partnership on the solar side with Home Depot and consequently, a lot of the layoffs are happening on the Solar City side, or the formerly Solar City side. So that was actually what grabbed my attention. Now, what, what's whether this uh, removal of the partnership with Home Depot is actually consequential, and what it says about Tesla's strategy in solar going forward? Any commentary on that from either of you? Well, the the Home Depot partnership, you know, is something that sort of ebbs and flows in general. Um, I think we started the Home Depot relationship back in 2001 when I was at BP Solar. And so Home Depot has sort of shifted from group to group since then. The biggest challenge with Home Depot is they really want between 5 and 10% of the total sale of the project um, to be able to sell through them, right, which is a lot of money. And so in general, I would say that, you know, people have sort of, you know, been of two minds about this, the Home Depot partnership anyway. Yeah, I was struck by uh, J.B. Straubel saying that um, they're really going back and leaning on storage a lot. So they have a they just announced that they've deployed one gigawatt hour of storage. And I think that's a pretty big landmark. And I'm I'm glad to see that they're focusing on storage. And and they have all along, um, ever since the Solar City acquisition, it has become clear that they have pushed solar aside, and they see solar as another sales tool to get more batteries out the door. I mean, they are a battery company. They want batteries in the highest volumes possible, and um, solar is just one way of of selling batteries. So now they're just gonna sell solar online and in stores. And um, Elon is backing up what we have 
first predicted and then seen after the Solar City acquisition. It's not a terrible strategy, though, right? I mean, I think when you look at the solar industry, it's fairly commoditized at this point. So I can imagine that he doesn't believe that the that the growth rate and the value of Solar City is really coming from solar sales. And you know, I mean, just to put the battery piece in perspective, you know, I mean, cattle uh, went public this last week. You know, which is the Chinese battery manufacturer. Um, and uh, you you still see, you know, the size of Tesla being quite large. I mean, even in comparison with the Chinese, I mean, even though they're only doing electric vehicles, mostly, I would say, I mean, they, I think they have 43% of all um, pure electric vehicle battery packs uh, for the auto industry are shipped by Tesla. So I talked to a couple of employees who still have jobs at Tesla and um, you know, they didn't want to be named, but they, they described the reasoning behind these cutbacks. And uh, you know, both of them had their teams significantly slashed. They're going to have new titles. It's a pretty significant reorganization. And again, just one of a number of reorganizations that have happened recently. And and basically, they characterize a lot of the departures as mid-level management because there's tons of redundancy within the company, and they spend. These two people that I talked to said that they spend a lot of time basically just fielding inquiries from employees about like, okay, who do I talk to? Who's really my boss? How do I get something done? And in an organization where Elon Musk's philosophy is we want flat management, I think he he likes a flat hierarchy and he wants people to be able to get things done in an entrepreneurial way. They, they've got a lot of bureaucracy that can be hurtful for, to decision making. So uh, I think it's really all about cutting costs and maybe flattening the hierarchy a little bit within Tesla. Yeah, I, look, I think Tesla still has the same problems, though, that they always had, which is that, that when they decide to go back to the markets to raise more cash, Elon is finally going to have to you know, prove to people that they can generate profits. You know, I think that when you look at the Model 3, my cousin's number just came up. And so he got uh, a call. He had to pay the rest of his fee. And I think he's getting his car in four weeks. And he's really excited about it. But I think um, ultimately, it's not clear to anyone that Tesla knows how to make cars. And so it's not, you know, if you don't really know how to make cars, then you're going to lose money in every one of these $50,000 vehicles on the Model 3. And I just don't see how that inescapable fact, you know, ends up getting resolved. Um, they do have to prove that they know how to make cars at the same level of proficiency as Toyota and GM and all the other car makers. They know how to make cars. They know how to make beautiful cars. That's the reason why Tesla is where it is. They just uh, haven't quite proven that they can produce those cars at volume. Yeah, and they've been distracted with so, with the purchase of Solar City and this new boring company and the shingles, they're just doing a lot of other things. Maybe if they just focused on the cars and batteries, they would be in better shape. A quick break here to talk about Sense, our supporter of the show. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy, and make the most of your solar investment. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market, well, they're focused on the home. They believe the energy-aware home is the future. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. It's very powerful. 
Those real-time insights can let you know basically everything that's going on in your home. When your kids got home, whether that sump pump is running, whether you left the iron on. And if you have solar, you can compare whole home energy use and solar production side-by-side, all with no monthly fee. For solar installers who want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, or for utilities that are looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help both. To find out what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energygang. S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energygang. On to our second topic. Rick Perry is now ordering all DOE employees to link arms around the nation's coal plants and create a human fuel security chain in an effort to keep them from shutting down. Kidding, of course, but I wouldn't put it past this administration. At the behest of coal baron and Trump donor Robert Murray, the Trump White House continues to search for anything, anything at all, to prevent old, dirty coal plants from closing. And they've landed on a classic American strategy for doing something that is bound to be controversial, claim that national security is at risk. Just after I left for vacation, Bloomberg got a copy of a leaked memo detailing a three-pronged legal argument using the Defense Production Act, the Federal Power Act, and the Fixing America's Surface Act to claim that keeping coal plants open are in the direct interest of national security. So the administration also wants to create a strategic electricity reserve, kind of like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, I think it's very unclear what the heck that would actually be. And then this week, a group of federal regulators were called before the Senate, and they all basically said, this isn't needed. So let's detail the legal case first and then go to the response from uh, grid authorities, which is almost universally negative. Catherine, what are we looking at here with this new proposal? Yeah, so to be clear, this is an addendum to a draft directive. We have not seen the directive. We haven't seen what this actual directive is going to be. This uh, addendum what? simply an addendum to a draft directive. Yeah, so this just <laughs> lays out, you know, what is the legal background, what are the facts, what's the justification for whatever the directive is going to be. Now, remember the press secretary. Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, last week did say that the president has directed Secretary Perry to do something for these plants for national security. So we assume that something will happen. Um, And if this addendum is the rationale, we can then pull that apart. And as you said, there are three different legal strategies. It's really as they're just throwing coal and uranium against a wall to see what will stick. And their rationale just, it, it makes no sense. It is completely unfounded in in that there is no problem. Right now, the ISOs are saying there's no problem. And yet there's this whole fear that's ginned up in here. So they say, the capability of our adversaries to cause disruptions appears to be increasing. I don't know what that means. They mentioned cybersecurity as well as physical security. And we can talk about cybersecurity. I don't know how coal and nuclear plants help on cybersecurity, honestly. If you Nobody have, does. Right. The more disaggregation <laughs> you have, the better you have to control the points of entry for cybersecurity. There's also no evidence that coal and nuclear facilities are particularly better at dealing with any of these physical issues, whether it's physical or cyber issues. There is zero mention of distributed energy, demand response, any other storage. They talk about Aliso Canyon and how Aliso Canyon gas facility shows how horrible gas is. They build a huge case against natural gas. The solution to that was energy storage, and they never mentioned that. So what they want to do is they want they want this emergency order. They want to pay these plants to stay online, and then they want to take two years to study it. So you know that's the case that they're laying forward. They use 
language like it is widely recognized with zero evidence to back it up or who says that it's widely recognized? Where is it widely recognized? So the the whole document kind of says the same things over and over and over about how great coal and nuclear facilities are and yet doesn't give any evidence to that fact. They also conflate nuclear power with um, nuclear weapons. And that is something that even Ted Nordhaus, who is the head of Breakthrough Energy, um, is very pro-nuclear, just went you know, on a tear about in the Hill and wrote an op-ed about how not to conflate those two. Yeah. Oh, God, so much to unpack there. I mean, this is crackerjack stuff. Like this is this is just not complete nonsense. And I guess it's it's probably not sur- surprising that they con- conflated nuclear power with nuclear weapons, considering that when Secretary Perry did come into office, he didn't have any idea that DOE actually dealt with America's nuclear weapons arsenal. Um, but let's just put that aside. I mean, if you talk to legal experts about this document and the other documents that the administration has put together to try to make a case for saving these coal and nuke plants, there's just really no good legal justification. Um, They're kind of throwing a lot of arguments together. They're not doing a great job of even considering the reliability report that Secretary Perry asked for at the beginning of this process. And uh, a shout out to uh, Joe Goffman and Ari Pesco at Harvard Law School, who put together a great podcast, and actually a shout out to you, Catherine, who passed this along on Twitter. So um, they they had a podcast conversation about the sort of the legal background of this document. They're lawyers; they're very conservative about, about the way that they talk about it. But like, if you read between the lines, they're basically saying that this is a complete joke um, in the way that this legal document is written. Yeah, and there are things in place that are going to try to figure out first if there is a problem. So remember, you know, while FERC said, no, there's not an issue now that we need to act on, let's open up a proceeding and just see if there is a problem with resilience. The ISOs came back with their comments and PJM has started a fuel security initiative um, of April of this year to try to figure out like, what are, how are they thinking about that? But there are also other ongoing proceedings at FERC that can help us think about, do we have a problem? And if we do, what can really be the solutions? Not just jump to conclusion, like I have a solution that I want and I'm going to try to build a case around that. So for example, implementation of order 841, which was the energy storage order, implementation of order 842, which is essential reliability services and primary frequency response. There's an order that's ongoing now, a proposed rulemaking on distributed energy resources and how will they um, retail, you know, be able to participate on both the retail and wholesale levels. So there are all these proceedings that if we can just let these spin out and these orders start being implemented, then we'll actually get a picture of what our system looks like. Are we done talking about this yet? (laughs) <laughs> I wait you know, a second you hold on I know what you're gonna say but you actually suggested that we talk about it right <laughs> I don't know that I suggested we talk about it oh actually I guess I did I look oh, I, I did <laughs> yeah look I um first of all like I I stand by the fact that the Trump administration is not worth covering and that everything that they are trying to make you cover is basically a ruse so they can screw somebody on some other thing that no one's covering um, I think in this case, in some ways, there's a silver lining. I mean, I actually think this is probably good news, right? Could you imagine 
the PJM, like actually defending like renewable energy's right to participate in the grid and demand response and load control and all that stuff after like screwing over all the battery folks last year and then, you know, getting their ass handed to them by the FERC to have to reverse their policies. Like, it's just like all of these people who generally are not on our side are being forced to defend us because the Trump administration really is that far off their rocker. Yeah, um, I would just also say um, there's some other things at play here. One is, as as Stephen said, this strategic petroleum reserve argument. So the strategic petroleum reserve was started in 1975 after the oil embargo to make sure that in case of war or emergency or an embargo like what we had then, you would have something like 727 million barrels of oil to be able to use where you need it need it in the country. Well, so there's this whole argument about, let's start a strategic electric generation reserve. And the best argument I heard about that was um, Rob Gramlich, who used to work for um, the American Wind Energy Association and also worked at FERC for a number of years, said, look, each region already has a strategic generation reserve and it's called the reserve margin. So every single ISO tries to predict what is our summer peak going to look like and then how much of a margin we have. And they always exceed it. I mean, they're required to have something like 15%. PJM is like 30% reserve margin. I mean, it's huge. They always have more than they need. That's our margin. Well, and that's why the oil burning facilities are still on in the Northeast. But, you know, amazingly enough, ERCOT doesn't have a strategic petroleum reserve. So it's interesting to see how this this summer is going to play out for ERCOT. They've got the the smallest reserve that they've really ever had, um, and so we'll see how well their nine thousand dollar megawatt hour prices in the middle of the summer um, does to keep the lights on. But uh, but look, I, look, I am glad all these really smart lawyers are chiming in. I'm glad that the American Petroleum Institute's chiming in. I'm glad that everyone else is chiming in. I think the notion that this is going to happen, that the probability that this will get put into action is negative 47%. So like, so I think this is great. Everyone gets to chime in. No one's going to do it because could you imagine the ratepayers, the industrial ratepayers in this country actually allowing this to happen, all of whom are big donors to the Trump campaign? None of them will allow this. Well, and they're predicting $8 billion increased cost to industrial consumers in PJM alone. Yeah, I mean, so many conservative groups have come out against this. I mean, it's there's almost nobody is in favor of this except for a handful of uh, members of Congress from coal states, First Energy and Murray Energy. I, that's why I'm saying, like, to some degree, I think the theater helps us because you know, all of these issues that we've been spending years researching to make sure that we really understand because everybody and their brother has been talking about how inter- intermittent power is bad for the grid and, you know, will take us down and all this other stuff and that there's all this inertia benefit from nuclear and coal. And we've been, you know, dismissing all of these myths. Now, all of that research that we've done is being quoted by folks who are traditionally not on our side to support our arguments, which is great. Jigger, I would not just say, make a blanket statement that this won't happen. I don't think that FERC would do anything, but I mean, I don't have any reason to believe that the president won't try to do something and use his executive authority. He, There's nothing that suggests to me that he won't based on his previous actions. But what's bad about that? This is what I'm saying is what is bad about the president of the United States 
pissing off every industrial customer in the country such that I can now sell a trillion dollars worth of microgrids to serve them at half the price of grid power. Well, it will be disruptive to the markets. And just as these tariffs, of course have, it will these be. tariffs have shown, I mean, that upsets the global trade balance. And I just think it could be really harmful. Now, I think it'll get wrapped up in court and I think we'll, we have a good fight on our hands. But boy, I still hate to see action on it. And I see what you're saying, Jigger. Like I, I do, I do see why you would sort of delight in such a terrible decision. But if we truly believe in bringing in lowest cost resources, lowering rates for consumers, bringing more renewable energy online, and shutting down these coal plants for climate reasons, then you know any decision like this is a bad one. And you know, delighting in it can only go so far. No, but I don't. I don't I don't agree. Like look, on the one hand, we accomplished the impossible this week in Nevada with new solar coming in at $23 a megawatt hour for 25 years from Nextera, and then there's storage added to that project. And so all the people are like, "Oh, it's intermittent power. We have storage involved as well." So, I mean, we are on the one hand reducing the cost of power tremendously across this country, and on the other hand, we are still getting stymied by utility companies across the country who don't want our solutions to be deployed at scale, they would rather they get phased in over 20 years. If Trump basically makes it so bad and so difficult that that some of these industrial customers, even if this is tied up in the courts for four years, if they say, you know what, I don't trust the utility anymore. I don't think they have my back anymore. I'm going to move to a microgrid. That would be a huge win in my book. The last thing I'll say is that there was a very powerful moment during the Senate Energy Committee hearing with FERC commissioners there. Senator Martin Heinrich asked, do any of you believe that there is a a grid crisis right now, that there is a looming crisis as the Trump administration has defined it? And nobody said yes. They just all stayed silent. Nobody raised their hand. And I think that's a very dramatic moment. And that speaks volumes to the actual reality of the situation. Okay, so to cap off the show, let's uh, celebrate. Let's reflect on the last five years, you guys. At episode 200 last September, we talked about some of the massive stories that have shaped energy markets and tech and politics, etc. I want to take a slightly different approach this time. Let's call it the butterfly effect. You know the theory. So a butterfly flaps its wings. It causes a chain of events. And weeks later, a tornado or a storm forms on the other side of the world. It's also known as chaos theory, as detailed by Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Seemingly small moments can cause market or world-changing impacts. And sometimes when we talk about stories on this show, they're incremental, and it's not clear until way later just how consequential they really are. So we're each going to pinpoint a moment, become chaos theorists, if you will, and describe why that moment was so important. Jigger, you're up first. What's your moment? So in the summer of 2013, I was in... Aspen, Colorado for our day, the Aspen Renewable Energy Day. And uh, I had drinks with um, Carl Pope. And Carl Pope, you know, had said to me, you know, this off-grid solar stuff is really real. And he showed me a bunch of math, and I was just super impressed by it. And then him and Justin Gway at the Sierra Club really went um to town at making this happen and you know and um they got the world bank involved they got the ifc involved folks had thought about it and talked about it but not really organized everyone together 
And then, you know, you just saw just a huge number of announcements right after that, you know, SolarCity's investment in off-grid electric, and then you saw, you know, folks investing in Kenya and Tanzania and other places. And I think today, the off-grid solar market is one that we just take for granted. Leonardo DiCaprio just invested in Kingo Solar and others. And I just feel like, you know, almost everyone in the world now believes that off-grid solar and microgrids are the way to, you know, to bring power to the 1.3 billion people around the world. But I just think that the work that that those folks did, you know, in 2013, you know, could have just been lost in the noise like it has been for many years before that. But, um, you know, really had a huge impact looking back on it. Yeah, I um, I have a very similar story with both of those guys. I think it was 2011 at the Rio Plus 20 conference and uh, Justin Gway I had been communicating with and he brought over Carl Pope and they basically outlined like why they thought the off-grid solar sector was about to get beyond, you know, small philanthropic dollars and pop as a real sector. And, you know, it took it took a few years um, after 2013 into 2014, but we really have seen an extraordinary trend in uh, venture capital investments, in large corporate investments and partnerships, in, um, you know, the improvement in LED lighting and lower cost of solar and pay-as-you-go models that have allowed the sector to grow. So I, I have a very similar experience as well. And I agree that they were, you know, there were a select few people who were really talking about this stuff before anybody thought that it was legit. And and then actually afterward, I think you had co-authored a piece with Carl and Justin for Green Tech Media in like 2014. And that's when people really started paying attention when more and more voices were saying, hey, this is getting beyond philanthropy. These There, there are real business models at stake here. That was our big slapdown of Bill Gates um, and his solar is cute, you know, remark in 2014. But but yeah, no, I, I just think that the butterfly effect there and seeing, because, you know, for a long time, Selco and Soul Electric Light Fund and others were, were just plodding along, right? But you didn't really just see the big uptick until, you know, all these other institutions were brought in and all this like sort of work occurred. Um, and it's just, um, it's just gratifying to see it. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so when you first asked me about butterfly effect, I guess the first thing I thought was more chaos theory, which was President Trump, <laughs> um, because that's been the that's been the biggest disruption in my policy world recently. But then I went back and kind of thought, like, what are the what are the little things that have happened? And this actually happened in 2011, um, and yet it set in set in motion a lot of other things. And of course, this has to do with FERC and energy storage. My I will allow advice. you to break the rules and go to 2011. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in October of 2011, and it was under um, the chairmanship of John Wellinghoff when he was at FERC, they issued Order 755. And Order 755 allowed for any kind of facility that provided speed and accurate response for frequency regulation on the grid to be paid for those services. And this was something that companies like Beacon Power, which was a flywheel company, had been working so hard to get done and had so much data to back up um, their argument that their facilities, that energy storage, whether it was a flywheel or a battery, could provide these services faster and more accurately than any other kind of technology. 
um, the order was written really well in that it was just, if you can provide these services, you will be paid. Um, Beacon had been hanging by their fingernails, waiting for something for FERC to act because their investors were waiting to see, you know, are these technologies and applications actually going to get compensated for anything that they can do? Because if they don't, we don't want to invest. And Beacon had a hard time of it. But that order then set off a whole lot of other things that happened. And, and actually, even before that order, California had passed the energy storage bill, but the target wasn't set until 2013. So the California target of 1.3 gigawatts was set in 2013. And then there's this cascading effect. So Oregon set this kind of teeny target of five megawatt hours in 2017, Massachusetts 200 megawatt hours in 2017, and then New York 1.5 gigawatts this year, Arizona three gigawatts this year by 2030. Now these all have dates that they need to reach them by. But this really did open up this market for energy storage. And this year also saw order 841, which basically says, FERC said to the system operators, there's no opt-out. You all have to develop participation models for all the markets, capacity, energy, ancillary services markets for energy storage. And there's an ongoing proceeding on distributed energy resources. So I feel like that order 755, that first, okay, we're going to pay you for this one little thing. It made investors sure that these technologies are going to be able to do something that they will be compensated for gave them some some trust in them, some credibility. And I think that started this the entire move to scale storage. And look where we are now. Four years ago, I started as a, on a team at the World Economic Forum on a council for the future of electricity. And I said, storage is the next big thing. And everybody laughed at me. And now it's simply part of the way they talk. Now they, now they laugh at me about blockchain, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, uh, where we are now is quite extraordinary. And FERC is considering rules for aggregating all these resources together, built off of the back of these orders for specific technologies. So let's think about, you know, the next step that FERC will take in considering aggregated distributed energy, you know, again, solar storage, demand response, load controllers, like all this stuff together as a large aggregated resource. Um, how will that? How will that get built off off of what has been accomplished with these individual orders? Yeah. So the distributed energy resource one really gets to state federal jurisdiction, and so there. It's. I'm glad that they separated them from storage because this was really bulk power storage. And the the DER piece is a little gnarlier. I think we can solve it. It's definitely, we can develop a workable solution, but we have to give, we have to maintain states jurisdiction over certain things. It's a, it's, so it's a little bit different, but I think it's going to move forward and it just depends on, you know, what the trajectory is, but eventually DERs will be able to participate the way everybody else can on all parts of the grid. And when I looked back at last five years ago, um, yesterday on the 13th of June, 2013, we had something called the grid resiliency edition of the energy gang. And we're still talking about it now. And I wonder if in five years, we're going to still be talking about it. And yet DERs will hopefully be able to participate and will be fully participating in all markets. So I hearken back to 2014, when the three of us were at the Department of Transportation for a private gathering of folks in the auto sector. It was a, it was a forum about getting to zero emissions in transport. And it was a small, um, cultivated group 
of, uh, you know, a department of transportation officials and people from the auto industry and a lot of analysts. So longtime listeners will actually remember we recorded a live podcast from there. And that was back when our listenership was a third of what it is today. Um, the event focused on a lot, you know, electrification, fuel cells, consumer education, car sharing, regulation. And I recall someone giving a very good presentation on autonomous vehicles, but it was really isolated. Like it was it was just kind of a side thought in this conversation around changes in transport. And then, you know, when you buy a car and all of a sudden you see that car on the road everywhere. That's kind of what happened with me and autonomous vehicles. In in the weeks and months after that seminar, it seemed like autonomy was everywhere. All of a sudden there was this crazy amount of activity in 2014 alone. Google rolled out a brand new 100% autonomous car. It claimed to have logged uh, over 700,000 miles on roads since its autonomous car program began years earlier. Uh, it announced a second major investment in Uber, and it raised questions about the pairing of autonomy and ride sharing. Tesla, months later, rolled out its new autopilot features, sparking a major push for the company toward fully autonomous fleets. And then in 2014, um, in the second half, news broke that a bunch of automakers, Cadillac, uh, Ford, GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, Volvo, they were all building self-driving car units or exploring self-driving technologies. And then, of course, Apple jumped in the game in 2015, shortly after, with its own self-driving car. And all of a sudden, it felt like we had entered into this new world. Like our previous framework, um, which I think was reflected in that 2014 forum we were at was dominated by biofuels and fuel efficiency and lightweighted cars. And it was kind of swiftly overtaken by this new framework um, that, that the transportation revolution would be largely fleets of autonomous shared electric vehicles. And I think that's a, a world that most people envision today. So um, I just thought it was really interesting to see that shift, uh, a very abrupt shift in the conversation and the technological development around that 2014 timeframe. Yeah, that is so interesting. I love that you brought that up, Stephen. I was just at an event last night where we were talking about aviation and drones and how that whole sector is changing too with all these autonomous vehicles essentially in the sky. And I do think that in over the last five years, the change has been unbelievable. So when do you guys think that uh, that we're actually going to be able to buy a driverless car for, you know, passenger use for like, you know, an individual homeowner to use. Not for at least a decade. Really? Oh, I was going to say three to five years. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably 20 years. Ah. I, you think it's 20? Wow. Well, what because range. Oh, should we bet on this? <laughs> sure. I just think that the edge case is so unknowable that no one will let this happen. That you will see like an autonomous vehicle basically while you're sitting in the driver's seat, which is what Tesla basically has. But I just think the ability for it to run without you actually being in the driver's seat ready to drive at a moment's notice, signing some sort of waiver every time before you get it behind (laughs) your car. Have you ever seen that? Like when the Prius, it's like, click here to acknowledge you're not supposed to look at the screen while you're driving. yeah, you know, like I just think it's so impossible to see that occurring. Um, you could certainly see it for like, 
you know, airport shuttles that go around a certain track or um, port vehicles or lots of other sort of like fleets. I just can't see it happening on roads and, you know, for well, individuals. I think it's important to distinguish between like a, uh, an individual buying an autonomous car and a company operating autonomous fleets of shared vehicles. So I think Waymo has said that in the like the next five years, they're going to have thousands of vehicles that are fully autonomous, giving people's giving people rides in uh, throughout Arizona and you know certain Arizona cities. So basically, like their vision is that anyone can sign into the app and get an autonomous vehicle. Um, Arizona, of course, has you know more lax policies or lax regulations on autonomous vehicles. So it makes sense that it would be that state. But I think it's a lot more complicated for individuals buying an autonomous car and operating it than it is for a large organization operating fleets of those vehicles. Right. But then but then if you believe that, right, then Uber, Lyft, all these other car sharing services will never go driverless, right? Like, or at least not in the next 20 years. I mean, because ultimately, even if you have to have someone sit there not do anything, you still have to pay them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a great question. I think those those are the answers that everyone is grasping for. So, seeing as how we've made it five years, we've those made are it five the answers. Years, I think we'll 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 have to make it at least three to five years to know if Catherine's right. Right? We'll make it ten years to see if I'm yeah. right, and then you know we'll go twenty years for this podcast just so that someone can be proven right. You guys think we can go twenty years? Yeah, I'll be. <laughs> We'll be taping the show from our cars, yeah, exactly. not driving. Of course. <laughs> All right, time for the free electron. Catherine, what's your free electron this week? In 2005, Congress passed um, Title 17 and the Advanced uh, Technology Vehicles Manufacturing Titles that created the Loan Program Office at Department of Energy. And I just met with them this week and they've said, we are up and running and we want people to apply for loan guarantees and loans. And they have a lot of money. They have $40 billion in remaining loan authority. And it's basically now kind of thought of as an as an infrastructure bank. They have eight and a half billion for advanced fossil, twelve and a half billion for advanced nukes, and four and a half billion for renewables and efficiency. Now, this is under Title 17, and Title 17 has some caveats. So all these technologies have to be innovative. They all have to either avoid, reduce, or sequester greenhouse gases. So the fossil can't be just a prop up old plants. It has to be new technology that really does reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And there has to be a prospect of repayment. They've done really well in this program. They have driven $50 billion in total investment. They've only seen 2% of any losses in the program. They've created, they think, 56,000 jobs. Um, The Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which gives direct loans, not just loan guarantees, still has $16 billion of authority. So they said they're up and running. They want people to come and apply, bring your technology to us, and they want to make it easy, and they want to co-invest. They they say, you know, don't just come and expect us to foot the bill, but we want you to bring other financial institutions. Um, And I think it's a really interesting uh, program. Not that this has made its way up to the president that I know of, but this seems like the right time to issue more loan guarantees because this president has no ideology. He just wants wins. And so if you invest in companies that seem cool to him and he can talk about some kind of you know, domestic jobs win, then he's going to support it. 
Yeah, so you would think that, except that the loan program office is also on the list of rescissions that the White House has put forward to try to get rid of a bunch of funding, which is not going to pass. But um, but yes, it, you're right. You would think that he would be good with it because it's infrastructure. Several of our clients are, you know, using our capital as the matching dollars for their applications. Jigger, what's your free electron? Um, so last week, the EPA announced a new resource to re- reduce food loss uh, and waste. And so they uh, put a map out on their website that shows uh, 500,000 potential generators of excess food, correctional facilities, educational institutions, etc., um, and 4,000 potential recipients of excess food, anaerobic digesters, several of which are ours, uh, composting facilities, food banks, and other places. And so I just thought it was really cool that EPA uh, launched this excess food opportunities map, as they call it, on epa.gov. And I think everyone should check it out. I wonder if that comes directly from Scott Pruitt, because this guy has an interesting uh, relationship with food, waste in particular. He uh, apparently in, there in that apartment that he rented from a lobbyist in D.C., he never took out the trash. And uh, he just kept the waste in his apartment and created quite a stench. That was widely reported. And then it was recently reported that he tried to get his wife a, a Chick-fil-A franchise. So, um, yeah, Pruitt's got an interesting relationship with food waste himself. Uh, I think it probably more proves that uh, given the rampant um, lack of filling of jobs in this administration, if you keep your head down and just do good work, like you probably can get stuff through without a lot of people noticing. Yeah, there are some good things that have been ma- ma- able to make their way through. Okay. Um, so just before we started recording, I, I got word that Europe codified a new target, renewable energy target of 32% by 2030. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether to raise it to 35% or beyond or uh, to lower it. Um they got to 32%. And what struck me was some of the language that was um, promoting. And what struck me was some of the language that promotes self-generation. It sets out new rights for individuals to generate, store, and self-consume their own power without onerous regulations, charges, or um, a lot of paper filing. And that's the kind of regulation that you know creates greater rights for individuals that I think everyone can get behind. Uh, it's something we, we could learn from here in the U.S. I know there have been some proposals from members of Congress to you know, streamline permitting or create a national interconnection law, but I, I really like this, and that language stood out to me as an important component of this new renewable energy target in Europe. Well, it's good to be back. It's been a couple weeks since we talked, and I'm pleased that we could get touch base on our five-year anniversary so if you want to uh, get a question into us or suggest a show topic, send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com or send us a voice memo and we may answer your question and feature your question on the show itself. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. A ton of you have done that. They mean a lot to us personally, and they go a long way to helping other people find and subscribe to the podcast. You can, of course, get the podcast anywhere you find your audio content. And uh, follow us on social media. You can find Catherine Jigger and myself and the Energy Gang Twitter uh, handle there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 
We will have a What It Takes episode next week while I am at the Grid Edge Innovation Summit, and then we'll be back with tons more conversation on the clean energy transition. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.